What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode four of From the Beginning. I'm your host, Chris Casella, and today I had a conversation with Jill Meyer, who is the president and CEO of the Cincinnati USA Regional Chamber, also known as the Chamber of Commerce. And if you don't know what that is, don't worry, I didn't either. Jill goes into great detail regarding what they do at the Chamber and explains very clearly their purpose and why they're needed in Cincinnati and throughout the country. Jill is a remarkable person, and you'll learn why that is during the episode. Uh, One note on my end is that you'll hear some emails coming through on her computer, and I actually had that problem in each of these next few episodes that will be coming out here soon. I haven't been able to edit them out, but I've now learned and I won't make that same mistake moving forward. So I appreciate your understanding and assure you that these conversations are worth hearing despite a few email notifications here and there. That being said, here's a story of Jill Meyer from the very beginning. Jill Meyer, thank you so much for being here. Uh, We talked a little bit before we actually got started just about how excited I am for this because I think that um, I'm going to learn a lot on this call and I think that the people who are listening will too. Chris, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Awesome. Yeah. So if you just want to get started, kind of introduce yourself, tell people what you do. Sure. My name, as you say, is Jill Meyer. I am currently the president and CEO of the Cincinnati USA Regional Chamber. It's a chamber of commerce. Uh, By background, I'm an attorney. So I practiced law here in Cincinnati for about 20 years at the Frost Brown Todd Law Firm. And then about five years ago, I left the practice of law, much to my surprise, uh, to come run the Chamber of Commerce um, because as um, was, I had a discussion at the time with the person who um, was the board chair at the time, And I said, she realized that while I loved practicing law and my clients, I loved this community more. And so it was an an opportunity and at a time when the the city, the community, the business community needed some different leadership. And so I came over and here I am today, still having a great time. Awesome. Yeah. So, and this is one of the opportunities I felt um, was presented for me to learn. And I think a lot of others as well. If you could just kind of describe either high level or in detail what the Chamber of Commerce or the Cincinnati USA Regional Chamber actually is, uh, why it exists and what the purpose is, I think that would be enlightening for a lot of people. Yeah, I'm happy to. And um, I'm laughing as you ask the question because so many people know the, the phrase, it's a Chamber of Commerce. And if you ask most people, what does a Chamber of Commerce do, they say, I don't really know. I know they work for businesses. Um, So I'll tell you who we are. And it is true that every chamber is different. Um, We are um, definitely a business organization. So we are a member organization for member businesses. We are a regional chamber, which for us means that we represent businesses throughout our 16-county metropolitan statistical area. So as the government defines the Cincinnati MSA, that includes three states, and 16 counties across those three states with Cincinnati and Hamilton County sitting at the the core, really uh, geographically, um, probably as much as it is economically the core of this region. So what we do at the chamber is represent the interests of those members, um, but to make sure that this community remains a really great place for businesses to thrive and to grow. And that can take on all sorts of different personalities. But what we do here um, really focuses on how do we make sure this is a place for booming businesses, whether it's tax policy, to access, um, to talent, um, talent development, talent attraction, um, all necessary for businesses to grow. Uh, 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 Related to that is if you think about uh, broader community need, Within our 16-county MSA, there are lots of different places, different opportunities, different types of communities that that thrive all in their own way. But working together is how we really create the economic lift for everyone. Um, So a lot of our work, because we are uh, one of the few organizations that does focus on that big footprint. So a lot of our work is focused on how do we connect our communities to get all of the disparate parts working together as one to make sure that that the benefit of, of that um, comes to life. Um, 
part and parcel of all of that, as you may imagine, is making sure that not only people within the Cincinnati community um, know about what's great about being here, but also people outside. So if you get right down to it, what we really want to do is drive population growth and, ta- and business attraction. So economic development at its at its core, you have to have a, a, a really great base of businesses to employ people, to allow people to, to build livelihoods and thrive. And so we do a lot of work in that space of figuring out how can we position ourselves to keep talent like you here employed and growing and thriving in whatever way you deem is your future, um, as well as figuring out how we can get your friends across the country and across the globe to move here and put down roots as well. Okay, that makes sense. And that sounds like a lot of responsibility, not not an easy task at all. Um, and I think I can kind of combine two questions here and maybe just turn it into one. I'm curious about what your kind of day-to-day looks like. And I think a way to answer that might be just by going through an example of maybe a project or an initiative that you've been working on either recently or um, that has stood out to you in the past and uh, you know how that relates to the responsibilities that you just talked about and then how you play into that. Um, in, in your position as president and CEO? Sure, I'll give it my best shot because <laughs> sometimes I wonder what my day-to-day looks like. <laughs> um, you know, the the I, I would say a big part of what I do, putting aside the core component of running this organization. So as an organization, the one thing I should have said about the our chamber is that, uh, believe it or not, Cincinnati has one of the biggest metropolitan chambers in the country. So we have about 4,000 business members all here. Um, So we have a team, obviously, who does all of the um, pieces of that work that we just gave the overview of. So one, it's running the business. But I would say a typical day um, really underscores how much we convene and engage and draw in the various parts. I have a lot of meetings, (laughs) Um, but those meetings are... Um, Not meetings for the purpose of meetings, which I think a lot of people, um, I think in this day and age, a lot of people have put an end to to that um, because people are just too busy. Even in the COVID age, everybody's too busy for too many meetings. Um, But it's really, it's meeting with business leaders to see what's on their mind. What are their challenges? Where do they see their potential um, growth in the future? It's meeting with elected officials and government administration to figure out what's on their mind and how can they be helpful to us if we see policy opportunity to promote our our region's policy um, to enable business and people growth. We're going to present that to elected officials to see how we might work with them to get some strong policy in place. Um, It involves, um, gosh, you know, pick it. If If there's something happening that has a major impact, whether it's economically or politically, that really does either have the world stop and say what it, you know what's what is Cincinnati about or what's going on in Cincinnati or has us say how do we figure this out? You can be assured that the chamber gets a phone call to say can you navigate this. Um, one of the things I left out, but people are usually surprised to know, our chamber does do a lot of different things. Um, one of the things we do that's uncommon for a chamber, but really important to our community, is we have a team here who run and produce Oktoberfest and Taste of Cincinnati and the Blink um, the Blink Festival, if you attended that. Those big, large-scale community drivers that help both tell the story of who we are here, but also provide opportunities for people to engage with one another, to connect to their community, to connect to one another. Um, we do um, a lot of work there too. So um, my days really, Chris, are um, not enough hours in them as most people, but I would tell you that I'm blessed with the opportunity to spend a lot of time with some really smart people and getting to figure out how do we make certain that this community going forward remains strong and solid. So um, sometimes coming up with ideas but at all times connecting with our partners and all of those who we have to work with to make anything big happen that will benefit our community. Yeah. It's okay. a little amorphous, but it's um, it, it. So you had asked, pick a, pick a, pick a project. Um, you know, if there's a, let's say there's a, a big company that is, is coming, is, or take a company here. There's a company here that's going to grow. They've announced they're going to add X number of jobs. Um, our partners at Ready Cincinnati, which is 
um, our, our arm that, that goes out and recruits businesses to move to Cincinnati to add businesses. They also work with local businesses um, who want to grow. So they work with um, the companies to get the incentives in place and to figure out the where and, um, you know, to the site readiness and all of those good pieces. But then when those companies are here, they turn to the chamber to say, now how do we grow? So let's say a company has decided they're staying and they're going to add X number of people. We will connect with them and figure out what are your challenges? What are your priorities right now? And how can we either be extra hands, extra ears? Um, Are there programs we can put into place for your employees, either to help you find the employees or once you are um, hiring them to help your employees connect to this place as their home and make sure they get engaged? Um, There's our government affairs work. So we'll, we'll sit with that company and say, um, is, is government policy working for you? If, if not, are there opportunities we can explore? And if so, are there areas where you would like to get involved and we can um, bring you along in our conversation to make sure that growth continues? So it, it takes on a lot of different uh, what we're doing, um, but all under the banner of how do we grow the economic vibrancy of this community? Right. Yeah. And thank you for that insight. And so clearly, just based on your answer there, there's a lot more to it than this. But one high level uh, description or explanation I've heard of the Cincinnati USA Regional Chamber is basically the liaison between business in Cincinnati and government. Would you say that just from a very high level, like a bird's eye view, that's that would be an accurate depiction of of what role you play? I would say that's one of the roles that a chamber can play and that we play very strongly. We have a a really strong government affairs team, and they um, work with our business members and with with elected officials from the local level um, all the way to Washington. And so, yeah, that's that's a that's a good description of a part of our work. Okay, perfect. And uh, I guess the last thing on this topic is just when you say you have four thousand member businesses. Um, from what you described, it sounds like the members really, they don't have necessarily a responsibility that they play, but they, it, they're a part of this, um, organization in order to help them grow and to help Cincinnati, um, as a whole grow. Do they play, you know, I guess the question is, do they play a certain role in, you know, do they have a responsibility? If I'm a, if I'm a business, that's a member of the Cincinnati regional chamber, do I have a certain responsibility to the city of Cincinnati or to the chamber? Um, or is my ultimate responsibility or goal just to help myself grow, grow and then discuss opportunities for the city? Um, it's an interesting way to ask that question. Um, here's what I would tell you. And when I said that Cincinnati has one of the biggest chambers in the country, um, one of the things that I've learned since being in this role is that the way the business leaders in our community engage in the civic improvement is unmatched across the country. So go to any other city, even cities where they'll say they have strong business leadership, and you find another community where the business leaders really do lean in to the collective whole um, the way that they do here. So I would say, at, at you know, it depends on who you ask. I like to think that our business leaders do feel a certain obligation not to join the chamber, but to help this entire community grow. Because as the community thrives, their businesses will thrive and grow too, right? Because businesses are people and you need people to be living um, healthy, fulfilled lives. At the same time, I'll tell you that everything we do here is to help our businesses grow. And we need the economics, plain and simple. A community cannot exist without strong economics. And so helping our businesses find any way that they can to grow in a meaningful, sustainable way is where we focus our time and energy. So we engage our members in our planning, our building, our initiatives, the execution of things that we do. You will, um, you know, the in our building on 4th Street, any day of the week outside of COVID time, I mean, just sitting in our lobby is a really interesting uh, exercise because the number of business leaders who come through the doors for one reason or another, not because of us, but because they're meeting with other other business leaders, sometimes with us, um, but they're coming together because they do, I think, by and large, feel a responsibility. But but that responsibility is also connected to their responsibility to grow their business. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, and I think that's a good segue, actually, to 
one thing that I wanted to bring up just for the listeners um, was that you were the first female, the first woman to lead your Frost Brown Todd office. And you were something called the member in charge, which I'm not entirely sure what that means. Maybe you can just really quickly shine some light on what exactly that means to be member in charge of a, of a legal office. Yeah. So um, Frost Brown Todd is a big firm and not just big in, in Cincinnati, but um, across, you know, a certain part of the country. And so the firm had at the time I was there, I think it's still true, but um, they had a CEO who oversaw the operation, the entire operation of all the offices. And then there was a member of, or a partner um, of, okay. in charge of each of the offices. So Cincinnati was, and I think still is the firm's biggest office. And I was the partner in charge of that office. So responsible for client development, civic engagement, all the moving parts and pieces to execute the firm's overall strategy, but to lead the execution of it in this market. Wow. That's awesome. And that's quite an accomplishment. So I think it's, you know, I feel honored to have you on. I think you're, you're definitely a great role model for, for young women who are working or navigating the workforce or, or who are about to enter it. So um, I think that's really impressive. And speaking of firsts, I read this before we hopped on this interview, your husband, um, Awadajan, Correct me if I'm wrong in that pronunciation. I'm horrible Perfect. with names. Perfect. He won and was the first African-American pianist to win the Nomberg International Music Competition, International Piano yeah. Competition. Piano, right. Which I looked it up. Again, I looked it up before uh, we, we hopped on this call. Is no small feat. It's like it's one of the most uh, premier musical competition competitions in the world. Um, so you and your husband are just a couple of, of firsts and, and very impressive ones at that. Um, but well, on I'm that impre- note, I'm impressed at the research you've done, Chris. Thanks, <laughs> thanks for digging in a little. Of course, yeah, and it was really interesting to read about. So I really enjoyed learning about it. Um, and you know, it, it's relevant to both of those pieces are relevant to I think what you do. And I read in an article something that said how your relationship is mutually beneficial, you know, even if you look, just like take a step back and look from an artistic and a business perspective, because you can't have great art in a city or a town or, or in general without the support of business and you can't have great business. So you can't retain the great talent and have great leaders without, um, a thriving artistic community. And I thought that was something that was really interesting and just kind of ties along to your point of growing the economy and growing an area like the 16 counties that are, that are a part of um, the Cincinnati Regional Chamber. I just thought that was interesting and, and something I wanted to highlight. Well, it, it is, and I appreciate you bringing it up. And it, this may have been the article you were reading, but in 2016, Awadajan and I chaired the ArtsWave campaign which um, you may know ArtsWave is the oldest and biggest publicly funded arts fund in the country. Um, And at the premise of our leading it together was that here's a world famous artist in our community and here's a business leader. And it was business plus art. And our whole premise of that campaign was this is a, a, this is a a mutually um, beneficial, some would say codependency, uh, (laughs) not in a negative way. Um, but you have to have it. And Cincinnati is so blessed with the the artistic foundation that we have. But in addition to that, just the culture and the the current day, I would say the modern vibrancy around it remains because it is so core to who we are here. And you won't find, you will not find a single either business leader or, or person working anywhere in, in Cincinnati who um, can't tell you what their favorite thing to do, um, even if they don't think that they're creative artist people. They, there is something that they they do and they love that has to do with that rich cultural offering that we have, whether it's theater or it's dance or it's watching, you know, movies, you know, film Cincinnati and everything they have going on here. There's just a lot here and you need, people need to be happy where they live. And if they're not happy here, they're not going to stick around. Yeah. And yeah, that's I've, not the business. Right. Yeah. And I think it's just a, a perfect example, right? The quintessential central example would be something like OTR, where the artistic community and the business community are both moving forward, progressing and thriving in lockstep with one another. It's a perfect example. Yeah. Yeah. That was definitely something I wanted to highlight, something I thought was really interesting and just kind of helped shape my my perspective, even just in these last you know hour and a half or, or hour here. Um, 
but yeah, I think that that paints a really great picture uh, regarding what you do, what the responsibilities that you have are um, for your role and for the Cincinnati Regional Chamber. So I think if we kind of take a step back and and this is kind of how each interview goes, if we take a step back and, and focus more on your story, right? And we start from the very beginning, um, your childhood, where you're from, what it was like growing up and, and, you know, the events that shaped you into who you are today and really how you got into such a successful position and, and ended up being something like the first female to be a member in charge of Frost Brown Todd. Well, I'm a Cincinnati kid. Um, and, and Cincinnati in the sense of the city of Cincinnati. So I was born and raised um, on the western side of Cincinnati in the city limits. Um, I'm the youngest, which is many people tell you is, is very telling. I'm the youngest of my parents, nine daughters. Wow. So nine girls and I was the last one. And Holy cow. That alone will tell you a lot about how I'm wired. Um <laughs> But the thing I would add is that I also, maybe no surprise, uh, a really strong mother who there was, there was never a question in her mind about how her daughters were going to um, grow up and operate in this world as, you know, absolute in control of, of our own destinies. And so I would say that as the premise probably tells you a lot. Yeah. The other thing I would add is that when you're the youngest in that line of daughters, your mom and dad are tired by the time <laughs> you're, you're starting to And there's an awful lot of chaos in the house. And so, you know, if you look back on, you know, I grew up in the days where, you know, summertime, I would eat breakfast and went outside for the day. And I came back when the streetlights came on, kind of a, a kind of a, a, an upbringing, which I'm grateful for. Um, but if, if you combine that with um, the, the whole family dynamic, I would tell you that from a very young age, and whether this is nature or nurture, um, I have always had an, an overly independent streak. Um, and so did that come from being given the ability to, to roam, uh, you know, safely roam, but the neighborhood and inspect and explore and probably get into a little bit of trouble? Um, maybe. Uh, but I can also remember just always being a very curious kid. And if I asked the question, I was accused by my older sisters all of the time of asking too many questions, which always annoyed me. And if I didn't get the answer I wanted, I would go figure it out. Yeah. So that I, uh, you know, when I think back to to childhood, there's a lot of remembering how I decided, well, I'll, I'll go sort that one out or, well, I'll just go outside and figure this out or I'll take myself there. Um, and I did a lot of that and my mom didn't stop it or, or, or my dad. Um, my mother stayed home with us. So she was much more present during the daytime, if you will. Um, but, you know, I, I'm a, a kid. I grew up on the West side of town where there are lots of Catholic churches. I'm, I was a Catholic kid. I went to Catholic schooling for 12 years, um, really active in sports. Um, sort of I just always was getting into a little bit of something extra. That those are the, the the curiosity coupled with a um, maybe irrationally independent streak um, can take you to a lot of places. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, what sports did you play when you were younger? What were you well, when I was in? younger, I played everything. Right, so yeah. soccer. I would say soccer, volleyball, and um, basketball were probably my core. Um, although I played, I did softball as well. I was a very athletic kid, so played all of the sports, but probably soccer and volleyball were my favorites. Okay. Do you think that there are any valuable lessons that you learned playing sports when you were younger that you, uh, have translated well into, to some of the lessons that you keep with, keep close to you in your job? Yeah, I'm, uh, there's no question. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of, of kids learning everything that you learn from competitive sports, Um, everything from how you rely on yourself, but how you have to learn others are relying on you to do your part of the job and that you have to rely on others and how a team works. Um, Probably the, the uh, most, um, I don't know if it's, if it's the most important, but one of the most important is learning how to take, how to take defeat graciously, um, but also overcoming what seems insurmountable. Like there's, you know, you're a little kid and you have a opposing basketball team where they're all two feet taller than you. Um, you're still going to play the game and you might end up, uh, you know, losing as badly as you thought, but you learned some lessons during that. Um, 
The other thing I would add, and uh, it sort of marries both of the last couple of questions, but though I was the youngest daughter of all girls, I grew up in a neighborhood where it was in at least my little age pack was all boys except for me. And so there was always the sense that it was never a question that if they were going to go play hardball in the in the lot, I was going with them and I was equally as good as all the boys. And so I never had that weirdness of the girls were doing something different. It was the kids played together and I happened to be playing with all boys. And so that I would think probably defined a lot of my um, outlook on how to approach things in a yeah. way that it wouldn't have if I grew up with. Um, and I, I don't know what that means. I'm, I'm stereotyping here in some capacity. I don't know how kids play differently. Maybe they don't. Um, but but being very comfortable competing with with boys yeah. was something that I I grew up with. Yeah. And you just think about it. I mean, to, if you split off and go your, your separate ways as boys and girls when you're kids and maybe you look at the playing field as maybe not quite level or the girls don't get to play the same sports as the boys, you know, in the schoolyard or whatever it is because of just, you know, how, how it is, or maybe stereotypes, like you said. So I think it is pretty profound that, you know, the age group around you is predominantly boys because you were able to see things, like you said, you know, you played sports with them and just saw things from a level perspective. So I think that was important. Yeah, it was. And I'm, um, I'm remembering, I must've been in kindergarten, maybe the first grade when the three little boys who I was closest with um, was signed up for baseball and I wasn't allowed. And I was incensed, but more so they were incensed because they wanted me on their team because they knew how good I was. But yeah. they, we were just told girls aren't, weren't allowed to play baseball. And we thought that was the stupidest thing we had ever heard. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious. Um, well, quickly, I'll ask, I'll ask one thing and then I have a follow-up question. But you mentioned that your, your mom stayed at home with you. Um, what was your dad's occupation? What was his profession? Was he involved in business? And was that something that you kind of aspired to when you were a kid and helped shape your, your career trajectory? Or what was your, your father's occupation? No, my dad, so before I was born, my dad was a mailman. Okay. By the time I came along, he was a manager of one of the branches, but my dad was a lifetime um, post, a postal, uh, postal worker. Yeah. Okay. And growing up, being the youngest of nine daughters, right? So that's a challenge in and of itself, but being the youngest sibling in any capacity is always, you know, always carries its own challenges. What do you think um, were some of the challenges aside from um, maybe growing up with all boys? I don't know if that was challenging at any point in your, in your childhood, but as you kind of look as your, at your progression from childhood to high school, um, what were some of the challenges that you faced growing up that you think maybe helped shape you into who you are today? Um, so broadly speaking, I would say um, the the frustration. Uh, so we didn't have a lot of money when I was a kid, right? You have a stay-at-home mother with nine kids and a dad who um, was managing a, a post office branch. Um, so very middle-class upbringing, but we did not have a lot of money. Um, I can remember as a kid being when I had this constant desire to do and play and join. And, um, you know, I wanted to be a gymnast but we couldn't afford to, to, for me to take the classes. And, um, you know, it, uh, music lessons were not part of our, our existence because we couldn't afford it. Um, I think the, the focus on understanding the importance of being able to be self-sustainable was something I learned at a very early age. And whether that came from being the youngest or our financial situation or, you know, I, I didn't realize until I was older that we didn't have very much money because when I was a kid, like there was always food on the table. Thank goodness. Of course, I wore hand-me-downs, but who doesn't when you're the youngest of a bunch of girls? We never took a vacation as a family. We couldn't afford that. We never had a new car. Um, so not that the the material things is not what I'm talking about, but the understanding that there are some core basic necessities that you need to make sure that you can have for yourself. So if you move me into high school, I went to an all girls high school, which I am an enormous fan of. Um, but even then I, you know, my outlook on what I was there to do and what I was going to do when I finished there was um, very clearly focused on how, how am I going to make sure I can take care of, of number one here before I, figure anything else out. Right. 
And as you think, um, you know, going from high school to college, did you know exactly what you wanted your occupation to be going into college? Did you know that you wanted to end up being a lawyer or an attorney? Um, or was that something that was kind of formed as you went through school and learned a little bit more about what you liked? No, I started, I graduated from high school knowing I wanted to be a lawyer. And you're going to ask me why or how did I know? And I'm going to tell you, I have no idea. Um, I can remember it. I just, I remember it. And I remember a conversation with my um, senior year in high school, English teacher, where I articulated it for the first time that that's what I wanted to do. And he was like, then you, then you will do this and you should do this. And here's your path. Um, But that back to that realistic point, I knew that I, I wasn't sure I could afford it because college is expensive and I was paying for myself to go to college. And if I was going to go to law school after that, that was going to be three more years of expense. So I wasn't quite sure that I could do it, but I started college intentionally and in, in, intending to get into the legal field. And so I went to the college of Mount St. Joseph college at the time um, because they had a phenomenal uh, counselor there who was a lawyer who had built a paralegal studies program for the college. And that was sort of new at the time. Um, but my intention was if I can't afford to go to law school, then at least I'll be in a law office and kind of doing the same kind of work, even though I can't go to court. So I went to Mount St. Joe and that, that counselor, um, again, was a person who said, Oh no, you're, you're, you're not pausing. You're going straight through. Yeah, so I don't know where it came from. I, I can't point to anything to tell you why I decided that's what I, was going to do. My family will all tell you I was destined to be an attorney from the time I could start speaking words. Um, but I, I have no good answer for you. Yeah. I think something that stands out there is just the support that you had from, from people around you in order to, to end up reaching that goal and have somebody kind of pushing you along it, even right when you said it, I think that's something that probably was really valuable as you, as you went through your career. Yeah, there's no question. And, um, keep in mind, I was the first person to graduate from college in my family. And so the, the notion of going to law school was not something that was common discussion in our house. You know, I, I ventured to say my parents, both of whom have passed since, since then. Uh, but I, I think my mom thought I was out of my gourd to take on all this, you know, additional debt to go to, to go to college and then law school. Yeah. Uh, no regrets. Yeah. There you go. Um, well, that's, incredible. I did not know that the youngest of nine and you were the first one to graduate from college. That's another very impressive feat. How did you support yourself going through college? How did you pay for school um, when you were kind of self-sustaining? So I lived at home one. Um, That's why I went, I stayed local. um, And that was a deliberate decision that this was going to be expensive and I didn't want to get too far into debt. So I lived at home, which of course helps. Um, and, And mom and dad helped in all those kinds of regards, right? Like made sure I had a car to drive to school and fed me and, and that kind of stuff. But I worked. Um, I always had at least a couple of part-time jobs. And there was a, at, at one point, well, probably for two, two years of undergrad, I had three jobs. So school, work, work, work. And um, you know, frankly, when you're living at home and you don't have the expense of food and, and shelter, you can figure out some things. Yeah. Yeah. That definitely goes a long way. Uh, very interesting. So as you progressed through college and you ended up going to law school, what did that journey from college to law school to your first job look like? Were there any major hurdles? Was it pretty streamlined um, in that transition? You know, it's an interesting question. Um, I originally went to law school thinking I was going to be an FBI agent. But then you go to law school and you start going through, I mean, it's a very big, I loved being in law school. It was a very busy time, but fun and exhilarating. And you're learning a whole different way to look at the world and to learn people. Um, and I did very well in law school. And so you sort of get caught up in that what's happening. And then I got recruited by this phenomenal firm. And then you sort of get lost in the, um, the, pro- the not the process, but just sort of the happening of it all. Yeah. So you know, I would tell you I had a blast and it all worked out swimmingly. But um, more recently, I have I have a seven year old son who is spy spies about everything like this is his life goal is to be a spy. And it has had me thinking like he, he's not fallen too far from the tree because I really wanted to be a spy. <laughs> Alas, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I Very, very uh, 
uh, that resonates. When I was a kid, I think my brother and I both probably thought the same thing. That that was some of the every, most interesting I think stuff. Every, yeah, every little kid goes through the spy phase. Yeah, uh, but no, I you know if I, I certainly don't have any regrets. But when I look back, I I wonder if I had been a little more diligent about sticking with what was in my core, would I have left law school and tried to get my way into Quantico and, and, and be carrying around a badge right now? I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. yeah that, uh, that would definitely lead to a very different life. It, it's, it's certainly interesting to think about. At one point when I was a kid, I told my mom that I wanted to be an FBI agent and she told me it would never work. And when I said, why she said, you have too bad of a temper. They would never issue a gun to you. <laughs> So, well, that's natural one. to be the, the youngest of nine siblings, whether they're daughters or sons or a mix of both. That's, I think that's probably natural. Yeah. Yeah. We earned it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I guess that's very fortunate, right? To have such a, a streamlined and, and natural transition from college to law school. And I think one thing that, you know, a lot of us struggle with, and I'll speak personally, like it's just figuring out exactly what you want to do, right? I went through college and I, I started as a finance major. I told myself, oh my gosh, I don't think I want to do finance. I changed to marketing, then entrepreneurship. And then I added an extra year and added finance back because I didn't want to graduate without a finance degree. And now here I am uh, working in finance, but I still don't know exactly what I want to do. And a lesson that some of the previous guests have really highlighted was the fact that you know some of them, like um, Mike Wan, the the commissioner of the LPGA, is fifty five. He says, "I still don't know what I want to do," and I think that's that's a blessing in and of itself because you're open to to opportunities. Um, I think that sounds pretty relevant, right? When you think about maybe you know you're at Frost Brown Todd, you're having a lot of success there, and then an opportunity comes up to lead the the Cincinnati Regional Chamber. What goes into to making a decision like that? And was it easy for you? Um, you know, were there a lot of considerations or was it something that was as natural as graduating high school for you and, and wanting to be a lawyer? Uh, that was not an easy decision, but I'll preface it by saying I'm not a person who has a five-year plan and I'm, um, you know, th- that's uh, the notion that I would know what I'm going to be doing in five years is like crazy talk to me. Um, and I've always been that way. And the, probably the most planful I've ever been was when I started college and thought, well, I I, be, I better figure out this paralegal thing because I don't know if I can go to law school. Um, that was planning in a in a distant way that I I will tell you is is not natural for me and is not what I gravitate to. Um, so fast forward when here I was 20 years later at a law firm that I loved, um, clients in a a, a, a client load and doing work that I just was having a blast with. And then this opportunity came along. Um, I'll be honest at, at first, my answer was like, no, why would I want to do that? In case you haven't noticed, I'm at this phenomenal firm and I'm having a great time and things are going really well for me here. Why in the world do you think I would walk away from this? And it was after conversations with some good friends who said, well, here's why here's what we see. And um, can tell us, to, to get lost, but we're just pointing this out in case you haven't recognized this about yourself. Um, the, the reason I finally made the, the jump to do it was at, at the core I already shared because I do love this community and I thought that I had some, um, something to add to help it grow. Um, but a dear friend of mine said, you know what, Jill, it's, you're somebody who has always, you're always looking for growth opportunities. And this is about as big a growth opportunity as you're ever going to get from the, the spot that you are right now. Yeah. So law, for, law firms are what you know, and you certainly, you know, business from your clients, but um, it's an opportunity and you can all, you know, your law license isn't going to end. You can always go back to practicing law, but, you know, follow something that you're super passionate about. And oh, by the way, it's also a tremendous growth opportunity for you personally. Um, and that was what finally had me decide that, yeah, I was going to do this. And Yes, people thought I was crazy, and I kind of thought I was crazy, um, and I was sure that I was going to be three weeks into this job and then calling my partners back saying, oh, no, I've made a horrible mistake. Please take me back, and I have never had the thought, and I can't believe it because I loved practicing law, and for all the people who say you know, private practice of law is, is all the things, and they're usually negative things, it's a phenomenal career, and it's um, one that I loved and really did think I would do for the rest of my life. 
Yeah. I think that's, that's a, a common theme. As I mentioned, you know, it's been brought up a couple of times, but not knowing what you want to do. But uh, another part of that is, is feeling uncomfortable, right? Making decisions where you're jumping out of your comfort zone in order to continue growing. Um, because I think that's really the only way to really live a truly fulfilling life personally and professionally, right? When you look back, um, one of the biggest things you want to avoid is, is looking back and saying, dang, I wish I would have I wish I would have done that, right? I wish I would have taken a chance. So I think some of those decisions, you know, people do look at you like you're crazy. And maybe in your case, you look at yourself like you're crazy, but they're profound and profound in a good way. Yeah, missed opportunities is um, something that you're right. At the end of your uh, of your long journey, you, you do not want to say, oh man, why didn't I do that? Um, there's, the, the, the thing I would, would add is, I think if people get too tied to their plan and too tied to the, what they're doing, they miss opportunities that might entice them. So even if, even if you love what you're doing, which I did, I always, you know, there was always an eye out there of understanding what else was happening in the world. Um, you don't want to miss things that might allow you to contribute in a different way. And so it's a challenge. And I think some people, clearly everybody handles it differently, but there are people who don't want those other opportunities to get in the way of what they're doing. And that's okay. But I've never been one of those people. It's always been one eye constantly looking around to see what else might not, not to employ me, but what else is happening that just might interest me. Right. I might want to join a book club. I might want to hike a, you know, a climb a new mountain or whatever it is, but to keep that additional lens out there of what else is the world offering you is I think critically important. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's so well said, right? So many people, um, you know, they go through their career with their head down, they have an end goal in mind. And so they kind of put their blinders on to your point and they don't, they don't take the opportunity to look around them, but all of a sudden they reach a certain point in their life. They, they lift their head up and they're like, holy cow, how did we get here? And you know, what did I miss along the way? I think that's, that's a great point. Um, so one thing I'm interested in just kind of, as you touched on it is comparing and contrasting your career in law to your career now. And I think I'm going to phrase this question kind of carefully to, to provide you with an opportunity to answer um, uh, either in depth or, or high level, whichever one you want. But if you compare your law career to your career now as president and CEO of the regional chamber, and you think about the most fulfilling part of your law career and the most frustrating and the most fulfilling part of your career now as president and CEO and the most frustrating, um, what would you, you know, thinking back, what would those be? Well, so I'll answer it in a couple of ways. And at the core of both of the jobs, I think um, a part of the, the answer for all of them, you know, f- frustrating and fulfilling on both of them is um, what comes along with problem solving. So I'm a problem solver by nature. And that is what you're doing when you're a lawyer. And that is most certainly what you're doing when you're uh, the CEO of a chamber. Um, it is constantly identifying whether you call them problems or opportunities or whatever, but it's problem solving at, it, at, it, at its core. And by its nature, that is always going to include some frustrations. Um, I will tell you that I'm somebody who is energized by problems. And so oh, I, I run to them instead of running away from them. Um, and that has benefits and perils, yeah. uh, depending on the situation, depending on what can get done. Um, I would say that at my when I was practicing law, a frustration was you're solving problems along the way with clients to make sure that they can build and grow. But I was a litigator. And so I was coming in to solve real problems. And a frustration may have been, um, though I wouldn't have articulated it at the time, I can I, I can see it now is that you just, you come in, you're, you're in and you're out. And so the inability to really build something from bottom up and know that it's right and know that it's going to go fine um, was probably something that I would identify as some frustrations along the way. Um, the other thing that I would say is the law firm structure um, the way historically law firms have been built and have not yet evolved is probably a little frustrating for me, but it, 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 it's kind of the same answer though, because I would like to take, if you take a law firm, there's a way to, to rebuild it. Uh, you'd have to change a lot of things, but that would be a fun challenge, right? So on in the chamber world, what I would say is I, I get to scratch that itch differently. 
because we do have the ability here and we're asked here to figure out some long-term, you know, what is the challenge? And, and it might be a 10-year play, but we get to build that um, instead of just swooping in on piece here or piece there. Now it has to be built in pieces, of course, um, but I think that's a real joy of this job is looking at a community and saying, man, we have so many awesome things here. And if we do this a little bit differently, and if we add a little bit of that, we're going to be unstoppable. Um, so that coupled with the the amount of energy and focus that um, our partners and the business um, and community leaders who partner with us um, pour into that kind of work is super, super uh, rewarding. Um, the frustration is that um, there's not an endless supply of time, resource, and attention span to to always get the really big things done. And so when you, when you, I have the the great honor to to sit in a chair where I get a unique lens on the community and what's happening and what's beginning to boil, and where we're missing. Um, that's hard to expect people who are otherwise running businesses or living full lives or launching their own new startups or whatever is happening. Um, you can't really get people to, to see that full big, big vision um, as clearly as we do here. And sometimes that's frustrating. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. I read, uh, I read a letter that you put out as president and CEO um, just recently. I, I don't know the exact date, so forgive me, but I think it was sometime around the summer um, where you really highlighted to the members of the chamber and to anybody who is listening, your optimism through a rather perilous time with George Floyd and uh, with the the coronavirus running rampant. And, you know, a lot of things that definitely, you know, cause people to have a negative outlook. And to be honest, you know, rightfully so. It's it's not to say that you want to be pessimistic, but it's definitely challenging in, in the face of such uh, such events. So I'm curious to know, Right. And one of the things that stood out to me before I asked the question was your innate ability to navigate that letter and and highlight both your optimism while also um, making it very clear that, you know, you were mourning for the George Floyd tragedy and you were being empathetic for people who were facing challenges uh, throughout the, the, you know, the course of COVID. How important is it and how important have, has it been throughout your career to balance that optimism? Um with also, I guess, I don't know what the right thing to call it is. I'm going to kind of be cautious and say realism, um, where, you know, you really do have to face the challenges head on and, and at least um, acknowledge that they exist, right? So how how important has that balance been for you where you're optimistic while also holding on to that bit of reality and, and realism in the, in the moment? Well, it's it's incredibly important. And I will tell you, and I joke about this with people, Optimism is my fatal flaw. I, I put it in the category of know thyself. I am wired to be optimistic. The daily challenge is to make sure that you are being realistic along with it. So you can come into any situation and say, we will find our way out of here. But A, you have to acknowledge there are a lot of there may be a lot of problems to solve on the way out. But B, and what I think is um, probably more important is understanding the people with you or, you know, whether they're alongside of you or part of, of the people you're communicating to, but understanding that everybody isn't wired to see a way out or to know that there can be a way out and to understand how to meet people where they are, to acknowledge wherever, you know, on the scale of whatever the, the, the opportunity is, um, but to then try to paint the picture for why you feel some optimism and, and the tragedies um, of this year um, certainly weren't limited to this year, but the, the out loud public conversation about racial inequity and inequalities across the country is an incredibly important moment for this country, for our community here, but for the whole country. And so to acknowledge that this is a painful, ugly, just repulsive real part of our existence is critically important. Yeah. yeah. But then couple that with it will not define us and it won't define us because I'm not just pie in the sky, sort of silly optimism, skipping along thinking it's going to go away. No, I'm somebody who, who, who is saying I'm going to partner with him 
and her and him and him and her. And we're going to build things differently. And we're going to tackle this and we'll take some blows and we may not succeed the first time, but we're going to make it better. And a reason for optimism is that you have partners and you have conversations with those people who say, this is going to be hard, but let's do it. And let's take the blows together so that we can create a better tomorrow. Yeah. But you're right. It's the, the, the challenge is to not sound like a Pollyanna. Like, does she have a brain? Um, is she really paying attention to what's going on? I think if, if you have to really, really pay attention, but couple that with just a deep seated humanity and understanding that everybody is wired differently. Right. Yeah. That, that letter definitely struck me. And I, you know, I think this just kind of echoes your point, but that balance really is so delicate, especially with such um, significant matters. Right. And I think, you know, one of the reasons is because if you're overly optimistic, then you run the risk of offending people, right. Acting like either you don't acknowledge it or that it didn't exist. But if you're too hung up on the stuff that's happening or the, the negative side of things or the tragic side of things, then you leave behind this, this other group of people who would be your partners in the optimism um, where they're saying, you know, you know, we acknowledge it, but let's move forward. Let's, let's make progress and, and do the best we can to help this shape the future in, in a positive way. So the, the balance is definitely delicate when you have um, two pieces like that, that are so profound in, in making a decision and, and getting people to, to join the cause. Yeah, it's, it's a recognition that we can do hard things, but you have to recognize that it's a hard, it's hard and it's going to be hard and it's going to take work and let's acknowledge how hard it will be and what the work will be. But if enough of us can do that, we can do hard things. We can fix things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, I mean, as we kind of move forward here in your story, you've accomplished a heck of a lot. Um, and now that you're in a position of such influence, right? And you've gone through and you you reach your dream and your goal of becoming a lawyer and you exceeded it probably by becoming the first member in charge um, and the first woman to do so in the Cincinnati office. And now you have five years under your belt, about five years um, as president and CEO of the Cincinnati Regional Chamber. So as you kind of look forward, do you have any significant goals um, or any other dreams that you you're you're looking to accomplish as you as you kind of work forward? And is there anything on your plate, even in your current position, that you're really excited about? Um, so yes and yes, though I'll preface all of it by saying, you remember, I'm not somebody who plans that far in advance. Right. And so <laughs> um, under that big umbrella, uh, there are some things that I'm excited about right now that we're working on right now that I would tell you is part of my purpose for being here, um, here being on the, the globe. And that is looking at how do we, how do we create a more equitable community? Um, when I got here and looked at the real economics, the economic drivers, where were our economic outages, where were there real opportunities or where were we pretending there were opportunities? Uh, it was very clear to me in a very short time that the inequities in this particular community um, for our black Cincinnatians, and this is region-wide city proper, um, versus white Cincinnatians is so stark. And we have spent decades very well-intentioned, very well-meaning and resourced trying to solve things like um, poverty and food insecurity and um, job training and, and things, things that perhaps um, if we had viewed as symptoms of a deeper challenge, we may have started addressing them differently. Now, we did what every community should do, which is take care of people in need. But what was very clear to me, and I'm not, I didn't birth this idea. Um, it started long before me. Um, but the fact is there, when there are economic disparities, you're going to have problems like that. That is, that is symptomatic of something at the core that is not right. And so at the chamber, when I joined it, um, in place was the minority business accelerator, which, um, came about as a result of the civil unrest in Cincinnati in 2001. Um, but at the core is how do we build black wealth? And you do that by 
creating the systems that enable more of our Black colleagues, friends, and neighbors to build sustainable businesses and sustainable business careers that are places and things that they absolutely should be doing and have as much right as, as, as you or me as white people to be there. Um, but systematically, our systems, we systemically, we've not made it possible in some regards. So a big focus of mine, and um, this is probably continues from this point forward, um, but most certainly while I'm here is really figuring out how do we build Black wealth, both through helping more of our Black colleagues build sustainable businesses, but also how do we help businesses, majority owned or otherwise, uh, uh, hire and promote more people of color into positions of power and leadership. When we get that balance right, the world will be a very different place. And that falls in the category of um, optimism versus realism. We're trying to reverse the course of, you know, 200 plus years of, of country building history. That's not going to happen probably during my lifetime. Yeah. But the fact that we are making real efforts and investing real money and real time and real energy and we're seeing real results is something that gives me um, energy every day. That if we if we get anything else right, getting that right will be job well done. Right. Yeah, that's incredible. I think that's great. Thank you. Um, and just before we move on to the next question and, and, and work towards wrapping it up here, is there anywhere where people who are listening can go to support the Minority Business Accelerator? Or is there anything that people who are listening to this can do to, to, help, uh, to help out in that regard? Absolutely. Um, two things we have. So at CincinnatiChamber.com, we, you will find a link for the Cincinnati Chamber Foundation, which is a 501c3 that supports a lot of um, things, including the Minority Business Accelerator. Um, the accelerator itself has um, so many good things happening already. So you can click there also then and just read about the accelerator. And there may be different specific opportunities that people want to get involved in personally. Okay. Um, and people can always reach out to me. I, I am ever available, jill.meyer at cincinnatichamber.com. Awesome. That's perfect. Thank you. Um, yeah. And so I guess just as we kind of wrap it up, this is a question that I ask each of my guests and I phrase it differently depending on, on their story, but basically the intent is, is to kind of share the lessons and, and summarize what you've learned throughout your career and, and share those with the people who are listening. Um, and in your case, I think, you know, obviously a demographic that you're going to reach is young women, like I mentioned earlier, who are navigating the professional business world um, or are about to navigate or trying to make the decision regarding what they want to do. So if you take a step back and, and you think about where you are right now and everything that you've learned throughout the course of your career, and you, you are sitting down, right? And just you have to imagine you're sitting down with the the younger version of yourself, the youngest of nine girls. Um with a stay-at-home mom and a dad who who is a mailman, and you're going to tell her, you have to give her a piece of advice about the journey that she's about to embark on and all of the ch challenges and hurdles she's going to have to overcome. Uh, what would that advice be? Well, um, the first thing I would say is say yes. Just plain and simple. Um, I think the second thing I would say is um, believe that you can. And then the third thing would be um, the the words of wisdom that I are my absolute in my core, um, as communicated to me by my mentor um, when I first started practicing law and through my legal career, is keep your eye on the ball. We are humans, and I'm guilty among them. We are distracted by lots of things, and we create lots of distractions for others as well as for ourselves. Um, but keep your eye on the ball and that's how you, that's how you get there. But before you get the ball, you have to say yes. Um, and saying yes. Um, uh, there's a lot of stuff out there now where people say, Oh, don't be afraid to say no. Um, of course you shouldn't be afraid to say no, but really you should say yes when you can. Yeah. And just to be clear, you mean saying yes in to opportunities, to challenges, to, to the whole nine yards. Yeah. Instead of the, um, gee, can I, should I, do I have time? What will I think? Do I like say yes? Yeah. If you love it. You've just discovered a beautiful gift. If you hate it, 
finish it up and don't ever do it again. Experience. It's an adventure. You checked it out. You're done with that one. Move on. Yeah. That's something that I, you know, I've heard the, the general idea say yes before, but framed that way. I think that's really, I think that's awesome. That's really helpful. So thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah. And just as we close out again, really, really appreciate you being on here. I knew I was going to learn a lot and I, I was not wrong. I think this conversation has definitely made me better in a lot of ways. And if nothing else, definitely left me with a lot more knowledge and understanding um, of what you do and what the the chamber, what role it plays in the community. So I think that's helped me gain perspective and, uh, you know, just, just made me better, like I said. So I really appreciate it. I'm very impressed with your story and your career and, and everything that you've accomplished throughout the course um, of your life up to this point. And I'm excited to see uh, what's next, but thank you so much for coming on. Chris, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm humbled and honored to be here and I really enjoyed our conversation. Awesome. Thanks, thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks a lot, Joe. Talk to you later. Talk to you later. Talk to you later.